Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Today, The Nose, our cultural roundtable, is based in New Haven. I don't know whether you care about things like that, but we're in New Haven, and we're talking about the Jim Jarmusch zombie comedy, The Dead Don't Die. We're also talking about the fact that the Obamas, Barack and Michelle, are entering the podcasting world and what that will mean and how they're likely to master that form the way they've mastered so many other forms. And we'll talk about that, too. I'm also hoping the panel will talk about a medical report that says that young people who look at their phones are beginning to develop horns growing out of the backs of their heads. But I can't really guarantee you that that will be one of the topics. Stick around and find out. Once again, here on the news, we're talking about Taylor Swift. I don't know that we've really talked about Taylor Swift like, that many times, but it's also impossible to do a cultural roundtable without doing that. So we're going to do it again today. First of all, we're live from our beautiful studios in New Haven at Gateway College. Uh, Lucy Gelman uh, is the editor of the arts paper, host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink. Sam Haddleman who I guess this is sort of your official debut as a full-fledged nose panelist. I feel like you've been on the nose like 20 times. But, but yeah, I think that's my first time like, yes. being officially on. And w- would also make Sam the youngest nose panelist ever, ever which is ruining Re- Rebecca Castellani's life right now. But these <laughs> things happen, you know? It's Taylor Swift has the same pressure. There's always, always somebody younger coming along. Sam Hadleman is the host of the Sam, Sam Hadleman Show on WNHH and a journalist for the New Haven Independent. And uh, Nicholas Qua uh, is, uh, knows more about podcasts than any human human being alive in the in North America, uh, the editor and publisher of Hot Pot, a newsletter about podcasts, which you have to get if you want to understand the podcasting industry. Uh, so uh, they're all here together. And so we are going to begin with Taylor Swift's new single uh, a little bit later. Nick was going to sort of um, conduct us through a conversation about the fact that the Obamas uh, are venturing out, out into the choppy waters of the podcast world. We've also been to see the movie The Dead Don't Die uh, by longtime indie filmmaker Jim Jarmusch and featuring a celebrity cast of thousands. Uh, and so all of that is to come. But yes, 
And I also need to say, on behalf of Lucy, today is Make Music Day in New Haven and Hartford. I believe in Hartford that does involve Kion Wolf playing a kazoo. I don't know much more <laughs> about it than that. But there are cool free music events happening around both cities all day. Take advantage of Make Music Day in New Haven and Hartford. But do not sing You Need to Calm Down. Uh, that's the new Taylor Swift song. We're going to be talking about it. You need to know certain things about it before you walk around singing it on Make Music Day. Um, so now that you know that you have to listen to this song and pay attention to it, I'm talking to the listeners, we're going to play it again, a little bit of it, just so you'll uh, understand or or you, you didn't realize it was homework when we opened the show with it. Now it's homework. Here we go. talk about this for better or worse kind of on probably at least three levels uh, one of the one of it is simply as a song that you might be hearing a lot all summer long uh, another the lyrics make a certain set of points um, and then there's also of course a video that goes along with it that is uh, chock full of celebrity cameos and all kinds of other signaling so I don't know Lucy where should we start Oh my gosh. Well, well, I kind of feel like these are three intimately overlapping things, mm. right? But I would like to start with the fact that this song is, for me, this performance of allyship that comes at this moment where Pride, so we're in Pride Month, if anyone hasn't noticed, Happy Pride Month. And there is this huge corporatization of Pride Month that is not unique to this year. We've seen it year and year and year. Um, but I, I think this year, maybe it, it has gotten under my skin a little bit more. Um, and folks have talked about it a little bit more. Uh, cultural critics certainly have talked about it a little bit more. Um, and and when I saw the video and also heard the song, I thought, okay, this is kind of a, a performance of allyship. You know, Tay-Tay took a long time to get on the LGBTQIA rights train. And I applaud her for being on that train. I think it's the right train to ride and you should ride it all the way. But... Um, but this feels kind of icky in the way it was released. It's in super saturated color. It, I've also heard people say to me, including my brother, who works for an organization called the Trevor Project, which is, um, again, it prevents LGBTQIA teen suicide. And he said, it's a great party song. Like, like just let it be. Let Taylor be. Let her have, have her moment with this song. Um, but also the lyrics are really dopey. Like, it's a bad song. So uh, so I, I don't know if that answered any of your questions, Colin. It answered all of my questions. <laughs> the show's over. Everybody go home. Uh, <laughs> just drop your silverware off at the kitchen. Uh, no, I mean, I think there's sort of a lot of things. Well, I mean, Nick, let's go, go another place here, which is 
It feels to me, and maybe we're all in kind of a New Haven bubble right now, and that plays into it, but in 2019, to be putting out a song that says it's okay to be gay, I don't know, that feels like too little too late or, or something. Like It doesn't feel like an act of moral courage somehow. Absolutely. I mean, there's this tension, right? Like, on the one hand, um, there is just sort of the baseline understanding that there are, like, large portions of American society that, that still needs to sort of receive this message and also needs the right writer to re- receive this message because, you know, when, we, when you think about sort of initiatives to, you know, raise awareness or to build sort of coalition or to build, uh, like, you know, solidarity, uh, you need the right vessels. And so, you know, celebrities are a form of vessels. We've seen this over and over again with advertising campaigns, brand marketing campaigns. Um, but with, with Taylor Swift, it's like it, there is... A very interesting baldness to the to the sort of how do we say that like the political acumen here. Like she has been very very good at building the right coalitions at the right time to sort of fulfill certain core <laughs> capitalistic ends. Mm-hmm. And like I, I'm a pure realist on this. I'm like if it gets us there, like if it helps us achieve certain outcomes, sure. But like man, the song is like covered in cheese. Like I just I it's I I will defend like a, like <laughs> a lot of her music. I Red is still in my current rotation. 1989 is still in my current rotation. But this is pretty. I found this pretty hard to listen to. And I'm like, if I'm being sold something, sell me something good. I also just the the copious amounts of of tea. Like she's making references to spilling the tea, and I feel like she just learned that like two minutes ago. And she was like, wow, that's cute. I should. What if our listeners don't know what that means? Spilled. I mean, oh, spilling the tea, throwing shade. Um, <laughs> you know, Steve, she, Steve Buscemi uh, beam of like, hello, fellow kids. Yeah, yeah <laughs> nah. It was just like you could tell that she's just like entering her thirties and doesn't know how to deal with it. You could yeah. just tell. Yeah. Well, I think uh, I we said that a little bit when me the first the sing, first single from this album came out too. It seemed very much like the work of a person trying to stay relevant at a time when the youth market anyway has probably moved on to some some other stuff. But I think, Sam, and I know that you picked this up in in the video too, but at a certain point, she does seem to make an equivalence between the torment that gay people face in the in, in homophobic environments and what it's like to be a celebrity getting picked on. Because she says, after she's set up this whole gay theme, she says, we see you over there on the internet comparing all the girls who are killing it, but we figured you out. We know you all, we know, we know now you all got crowns, you need to calm down. So suddenly she's kind of veered off, and as you pointed out in the video, she's also doing some of her pretty typical score settling with various uh, with celebrity Con- With Kanye West. The, the, you could tell by the entire first verse, like literally the line for line is all about Kanye West saying, don't tweet so much uh, you need to calm down and you could cu- you could tell uh, by the little uh, e- Easter egg during the video when Ellen DeGeneres is getting Cruel Summer tattooed on her arm the Cruel Summer is obviously alluding to a probably the run that she's about to go on this entire summer kind of the vengeance tour and the fact that Kanye West album called Cruel Summer and you could just see that she's still pretty salty about that yeah it just felt like she just needed something <clears throat> to stay culturally relevant like she grabbed on to settling her Katy Perry beef right. uh, settling uh promoting Pride Month, going at Kanye West, who's an easily an easy figure for especially her audience to go after. I feel like she's just trying to right the wrongs of her past. Like, I would say she had more of a right-wing country audience beforehand, and I think she's just trying to kind of shift more left with all these kind of cultural influences and moments during her video. Well, what is her constituency right now? Like, that's the thing I'm trying to wonder. Because if, if she's sort of aging up, like, what is her constituency? I don't know, because I, I went to a, a pretty country college in Deland, Florida, and I could honestly say that I don't know many people that listen to her, and I'm talking about, like, cowboy boot, like, go to the barn on a Saturday night, like, I don't really know that many people that listen to new Taylor Swift, so, yeah, I kind of kind of think that myself. I know I'm not the target audience myself, but... 
Well, I think also, I mean, first of all, the um, video does a little bit of rapprochement uh, between her and Katy Perry. One of them is dressed up as a burger, and the other one is dressed up as fries. Yeah, because they're settling the beef. They're settling the beef. Okay. See, I lied. <laughs> that you. was that. Yeah, Thank I you missed for that. that. I missed yeah. that. So, um, <laughs> you know, so but I, th- I think they're both, you know, I, I think that the argument that they would make is that they're both kind of celebrities and celebrity performers who don't have a specific constituency. They're pop stars. Uh, they're pop stars. And if they do the pop star thing well, they'll be somewhere in the top 10 uh, on Billboard, on, on the singles chart. And that's who they are. And if people in cowboy boots like them, that's great. But they're not really as worried about that as they might be with a more niche specific thing. So I I had this thing happen to me today. Particularly, I got here to uh, to Gateway College, and I'm walking around. I get here kind of early, and I'm walking around, and I'm going to the cafeteria and stuff, and I'm singing a song that's not the Taylor Swift song. Now, keep in mind, the Taylor Swift song goes da 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 da. So I'm singing a song, but I'm thinking I'm not singing the Taylor Swift song. I'm singing a different song, which I learned by watching Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. It's this song. Okay, this could be like a big headline here. Clueless old guy in Connecticut <laughs> catches Tay Tay fighting on Post Malone. So, Sam, uh, contextualize that song for us. Uh, well, the person singing Sway Lee, uh, half, one half of Ray Tremored, and Taylor Swift can't keep up with his vocals, if I'm really being honest. Uh, but, I mean, Taylor Swift's the master cultural appropriator. If we saw at the look, look uh, Taylor Swift and Katy Perry, when Katy Perry was sporting those off-brand grills and when, she, bra- when she braided her hair, and yeah. when Taylor Swift decided to put her hat sideways and get like a boombox and try to like break dance in the Look What You've Done video, like she is the master cultural appropriator. So for her to do this, like, that, but it's kind of funny because Post Malone's kind of also a master cultural appropriator. So it's kind of like cultural appropriation from cultural appropriation. If that, kind, if I'm explaining that well, yeah, no, like it's like oh, it's like diluted to this. Yeah. But but I feel like that's what she did because like the like the me it's like video. Omar in the wire. He steals from the other drug dealers anyway. Right, like the <laughs> yeah. the me video, which has also been discussed on the show was like yeah. like Beyonce did this groundbreaking earth shattering amazing amazing performance and then Taylor was like oh that's cute I should get a band on stage mm-hmm. <laughs> basically I mean yeah. that's kind of what she does and th- and this whole song is about making like like making her brand of allyship a very palatable brand if you think about who appears and it's it's a chalk it's chock full of celebrities so but you've got Ellen DeGeneres you've got Jesse Tyler Ferguson you've got RuPaul among many many other people all of queer eye all of these are folks who I think in mainstream culture have made gay rights um, palatable to folks. There's no reference to someone like Marsha P. Johnson in this, right? Because that's not who Taylor's uh, audience is going to be. Right. All right. Well, I think we've picked on Taylor Swift enough. Okay. I like some of her songs, and Nick still has her in medium rotation on mm-hmm. his playlist. Her first album's really good. Yeah. So good. Um, I still think Shake It Off is actually a great pop song. Um, wow. Which which she performed last week at Stonewall. She oh. kind of showed up with her guitar and, and oh, performed an acoustic set. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. So enough picking on Taylor Swift. We're going to segue on to our next uh, um, 
topic. Although if it turns out that there's a real problem with Sunflower and Post Malone and this thing, I want to be the, known as the person who's sitting in New Haven at the age of 64 not basically knowing what's going on most of the time. Figured that out in some very primitive way. Uh, all right, so Nick is going to lead us through this one because this is sort of something that we, I think it's fair to say, we don't know very much about because nobody outside of the Spotify company probably knows a lot about this. But if anybody knows a lot about it outside of the Spotify company, it would be Nick Kwa, who's sitting right here. So the Obamas are going to do what? What, what do we know about this? So here's the headline. Uh, about a week, week, two weeks maybe ago, um, Spotify announced that they formed a multi-year deal, or they sort of struck a multi-year deal with uh, the Obamas' like media company called Higher Ground to produce podcasts, apparently. Um, and our un- general understanding of what this deal is and what this would translate to is that it's sort of the audio equivalent of the deal that the Obamas struck with Netflix to produce a number of documentaries or some sort of programming uh, that has like a broad... We don't even quite know what the the content approach is necessarily, but we do know that uh, the Obama's general intent is to you know foster better feelings of uh, about democracy and political participation and to like you know generally generate that kind of of content and, and material. And so Spotify essentially is like the audio equivalent of this. Um, I was in, out in LA uh, for the past two weeks trying to figure out uh, some stuff about Spotify, and 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 as part of that, what is up with this deal? Um, it's still very much early days for what they're going to create. But we do know that there's uh, that Spotify has spent uh, tons and tons of money to strike this deal. But it made me wonder, what exactly do I want from the Obamas as content creators? Like, I, I don't, I don't quite know um, what the post presidency playbook looks like anymore. Well, it's streaming. They're going to be. This well, is, so it's it's their stream, yeah. This is the, the Obama's streaming period. Hundred uh, percent. Yeah. In, the, you know, the, in their big biographies, twenty twenty five years from now, this will be the streaming period. Yeah, Lucy, what were you going to say? Oh. Not nothing. I was I was just shifting in my chair. Well, no, was, no, I, well so Nick asked a qu- I think a pretty good question. What do we want from the Obamas in terms of content? I you know I I want more Michelle. That's that's just like what I want at this point. Um, one of one of my colleagues has been listening to Becoming as she does some web work um, next to me, and so I can kind of like hear uh, Michelle's words coming through uh, her headphones because we sit very close together in the office. I want more of that. Um, I, you know, yeah, I, I like the brand of podcast. I, I am one of those left-leaning people who probably gravitates toward the brand of podcast that is like Pod Save America, Pod Save the People. And I think we'll get a lot of that from the Obamas, like democracy is good, here's why, and everything's going to be okay. Um, I, I don't know, frankly, how much of that I am going to listen to at this point. But I also think there is an appetite for it. People miss the Obamas. They miss them so much. Um, We've seen what an immediate and viral and um, I think very well-deserved success Becoming was. And I'm excited to see what happens, even though I feel, uh, you know, mixed, I think, as many people do about Spotify as this massive company that sort of eats up little artists and spits them out. So, Sam, I have a very specific question for you, but I don't want to get in the way of anything generally you might want to say about this. Okay. Do you want to say something generally? Uh, yeah, um, I feel I feel kind of fifty fifty about it. I love Obama as a cultural figure, best cross best presidential crossover of all time. Uh, you haven't really seen like a, a president kind of take this well liked look into the media. It took like ten years for George Bush to be well liked in the media landscape. Jimmy Carter's off building a house. You know, like it's it, it's kind of hard to imagine like President Obama having his own like Spotify Discover Weekly page. You know what I mean? Like, I, and I I think I'd rather hear from Michelle too than Obama. I don't know. Since he's left the presidency, I've felt less inspired by his post presidency appearances. If mm. that makes sense. Like, I feel like he's been like 
less confident and less focused, at least from my perspective, when I hear him talk. Like when I when I go back and I watch like 2008 Obama, 2010 Obama, that that's the confident, you know, presidential Obama I think about that I grew up with. And then seeing him pass now, like I, I, I don't know, I just feel like the confidence isn't there that he had before. Do you agree? I well, I also kind of feel like he he's like okay, Obama out sort of like I'm I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> you elected this person as you president. You just compared the president me. to Ryan Seacrest. I just <laughs> want to make that point. But but I think I mean I I I will say I really do enjoy the articles that sometimes favorably and and sometimes there's uh, the coverage is a little more searing. But Obama out there enjoying his life. I think he gave eight really difficult years to this country where we had people who made it their mission to um, sort of turn down any legislation he proposed at any turn. And so I'm interested in seeing it, but uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm just on the Michelle train. I'm riding it no, hard. No, I agree. I agree for sure. And I, 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 yeah, go ahead. I was, I was going to say, I don't know. And I feel kind of weird about uh, political figures kind of going to the podcast realm. Like if you guys remember the week before Trump got elected, he said that he was going to start Trump TV if he had lost and he was going to come up with a huge media conglomerate. Mm-hmm. So to watch like the Obamas kind of take that model and run with it themselves kind of makes me feel kind of weird. Well, it, I, I think people do feel icky when they think about the Obamas within this corporate structure. So I remember a couple of years ago, there was this big hubbub around how much the Obamas charged as their speaking fee. And really, if you look at what politicians charge as their speaking fee, it isn't that shocking or that revelatory. But people all of a sudden said, wait, I, I thought this president was different. And so I think they had a moment with this. I don't know if folks are going to have an, another moment when they roll out whatever content they do. Although here, so Nick, one thing that I feel about this is that um, the, the Obamas obviously have understood media very well and kind of the incipient media media environment very well since the get-go. I mean, this really was in 2008, if you remember the Obama girl doing the YouTube video. This is really the first digital pres- presidency in a, in a lot of different ways. And, and he did figure out how to use the Internet, how to replace some of the conventional means of reaching people. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me that they would want to try to do this. I do think one difference, no, uh, there have been other presidents, Ronald, well, FDR, Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, who really understood the media very, very well. But their idea of understanding the media was just to show up on it, mm-hmm. you know, to, just to be there. And, and even somebody like Hillary Clinton would maybe do a cameo here or there that just involved yeah, She her. also had a podcast in 2016 leading up to elections. Right. Yeah. So, so why, and, but I think the Obamas, and this may have something to do with being um, the first black president, the first black first family, uh, in that sense that you got to be a little bit better uh, than everybody else. They see their job as creating content, you know, not just writing some self-congratulatory book or something, but (laughs) creating a lot, which is pretty much what ex-presidents do, but creating a lot of content in a lot of environments. And there's a burden. I mean, they're they're probably going to have to put some real work into this, too. So, I mean, that needs to be acknowledged anyway. Here's the complexity. How media works in 2019 is not how media works in 2016 to 2012 to 2008. And Mm. I think that's the real challenge here. And I think even to the tail end of his presidency, he did make a couple of public comments and just sort of opining and observing the nature of the changing landscape media, how it's sort of decentralized power and authority. And so we have a situation in which, like, um, these gambits with Netflix and Spotify isn't just mere, like, content creation or political messaging, which is essentially what the prowess was, was to get a message about this personality, this political figure from point A to point B. It is, li- it is literally to seed culture and to shape culture and to form culture. And sort of media and politics has long had this relationship where it's sort of recursive. And it's a, whole, it's a fundamentally different ballgame. And it's the same kind of ballgame that Taylor Swift plays, that movie directors play, that anybody who wants to create a sense of culture or a sense of 
of you know public national messaging are are playing. And so this is among the hardest games to get into. He has a lot of cachet. I'm curious. This is also a time in which political documentaries are making such a comeback. Knockdown the House was a viral sensation. Uh, we also saw like Running with Beto's another documentary is coming at HBO is creating a lot of buzz. Um, and so we have this in, we have this environment where there's a hunger for it, but we don't quite know for what kinds of versions of this kind of content. Well, Lucy, you mentioned Pod Save America. That's an I example did. of some people who were former presidential staffers who figured out. Uh, first with keeping it 1600 and then converting it to this, that if you did something in a really fun way and kind of created a club, one of the things podcasts do, I think, really well is create a club of people who know the podcast, they know the panel, they know the fans, they enjoy, they know so-and-so is a certain way, you know, they know Emily Bazelon is like the smart girl and David Plotz is the troublemaker, whatever they're listening to, you know, they just sort of, and they get into that. And if the Obamas can figure out how to do that, I think they might have something. Well, I think they can do that better. I mean, I have to say with Pod Save America, it's interesting. I um, I initially did gravitate toward it. I can't listen to it anymore because recently they've really been skewering the media, actually. And <laughs> evidently the media is just one person. It's news to me. But um, but but yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing with the Obamas that we already know, and I hope I'm not wrong, is that the production value will be incredibly high, whatever it is. And I'm, I'm just as excited to see what the Netflix arm of this is. And I think there's really a Netflix moment that we've all seen, especially with documentary material right now. So I think also, Sam, we have to acknowledge that, and it's one of the reasons Lucy misses her so much, Michelle Obama was unlike any first lady in history in the way that she really could participate in popular culture. I mean, seeing her show up with Jimmy Fallon and do like the history of mom dances and like dance that whole thing out and yeah. doing st- <laughs> and other stuff like that. Throw a dodgeball at Harry Styles. Well, yeah, I mean, one, just, one Direction. Yeah, just recently, uh, there's, it's a very funny thing. You can track it down if you haven't seen it, but Jim James Corden uh, challenged her uh, to a dodgeball contest between the U.S. and uh, the U.K. It wasn't a serious thing, obviously. It was all played for laughs. But, you know, she does these things and she, she doesn't seem like I mean, most people who have spent their lives in politics or being first ladies or whatever have a woodenness that kind of they just can't quite shake off when they get into an environment like this. She seems like she totally belongs in these environments. Well, I mean, her her existence is kind of unprecedented. You have to think about that as well. Like uh, being the first black, the first black first lady, like that's just such an unprecedented role that she could really do whatever she wants with it. And especially coming up in the age where media was so connected, they're kind of like the first celebrity presidential couple. You know what I mean? Like they're they are everywhere. Like how much do you know about Laura Bush? Not that much, but you know everything about Michelle Obama because it was just such a time where the media had such access to them. Like we know, we even know what the Obamas' kids do at tailgates. That's how that's how <laughs> much of an access there is to the Ob- Obamas. Like I the, don't know that they are complete. I just know because she was hanging out in New Haven, uh, Malia, <laughs> oh, um, and um, I you. Like it just you have just such an unlimited amount of access to them that it's kind of like this duality of their celebrity and their presidential stature that I think is really going to come out interesting in these Netflix and podcast uh, like episodes. It's it's just kind of like this weird intersection we've never seen. So I'm really excited to see how it plays out. All right, we should probably uh, wrap it up here, but uh, there's there are more chapters to be written as the Obamas begin their lives as streamers and content creators. We'll take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about the new Jim Jarmusch movie.
All right, we're back with the news. We're live from the Gateway Studios in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, with me uh, to be the nose are Lucy Gelman, uh, Nick Qua, uh, and Sam Hadleman. I should say that Sam Hadleman will be returning in less than seven, fewer than seven days. Uh, he will be uh, on our annual and very annoying, uh, <laughs> usually, a Song of the Summer show, where we try to figure out one song to rule them all, one song to bind them uh, over the course of the summer. What is that song going to be? He'll join the commissioner of the Song of the Summer, a New York DJ, uh, Brendan Sullivan, uh, and a new mystery guest who will be, we will debut at this at that time. I, it's actually, I just can't remember her name, but... Um, <laughs> And I probably shouldn't have admitted that right there. All right, so we all went to the movies. Uh, we went to see The Dead Don't Die. It's by Jim Jarmusch. Jim Jarmusch is now 66 years old. He's been making movies for 40 years. Uh, and uh, this is his latest. Um, he kind of specializes in an indie m- type of movie that seems not at all interested in courting your approval. Uh, that might just be my read of it. Uh, and uh, so we should probably hear a little bit of it. So you're going to hear, uh, this, is a, we, this is a zombie movie, if I didn't say it yet. It's about a small town that appears to be in western Pennsylvania, Centerville, that, like the rest of the earth, apparently, at this moment, is going to be run overrun by zombies due to a shift in the, uh, this is not strong science, I don't think, but uh, because of polar fracking, the if the earth has shifted on its axis a little bit. Uh, so zombies are coming out. Uh, and so you'll hear Chloe Savigny as Officer Mindy Morrison, Adam Driver as Officer Ronnie uh, Peterson, and Bill Murray as Chief Cliff Robertson as these people, these law enforcement people, try to sort out their role in all this. Guys. Shouldn't we be telling each other that it's all going to be okay? That this will all go away like a bad dream? Ronnie? Gee, Mindy, I'm not sure I can say that. Cliff? Please? It's all going to be okay, Mindy. Maybe it'll all just go away like a bad dream. I doubt it. (laughs) All right, so uh, maybe just to start, we'll kind of go around the table, take everybody's temperature on this movie and also make sure that way that they're not a zombie. Uh, So, Nick, how did it go for you? Ah, man. I, no, I, I wish I had my 650 back. <laughs> I took an, I took an afternoon off to see this, and I was like, "Wow, okay, I wish I didn't do that." Okay, so that's his temperature. Uh, I can see this is going to be another Taylor Swift situation where I, I may have to rush to the rescue or something. Go ahead, Lucy. Oh, I am. Um, I, I found it charming. I think because I went in with incredibly low expectations. Mm-hmm. But um, uh, yeah, it it was great. Um, probably if I, I also got a free popcorn out of it, which was. Which wow. was great, yeah. So, um, so, so I think you know I ate popcorn for dinner, which I don't do a whole lot anymore. I found this movie charming because I thought it was going to be worse than it was. Okay, and Sam, how about you? It was so bad. <laughs> it was it was like literally the top ten worst movies I've ever seen. <laughs> like, I, like it was up there with the last Ghost Rider, the new Fantastic Four, 
and movie 43. That's savage. That, like, that is, you have put it in a very terrible inferno <laughs> ring. Um, I, I, I want to say that, first of all, I went, I, I'm not a Jim Jarmusch fan. Um, and for like everybody else, the last Jim Jarmusch, Bill Murray uh, movie that I had seen was Broken Flowers. So that didn't really set me up to be in a good mood about this. Um, I actually, I mean, am I, the, I, I laughed out loud a number of times. I'm not defending this new movie. I'm not recommending it necessarily to anybody. But um, I and I don't want to spoil too many things by saying what I laughed at. Although I will just say that Carol Kane, there's a lot of like little celebrity appearances or cameos of pretty well-known actors, or sometimes you don't even realize. I like I didn't realize it was Iggy Pop uh, who goes into the diner at first. Coffee, it's Iggy, it's Iggy, yeah, that guy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Iggy Pop and um, Jim Jarmusch's wife, Sarah Driver. I think are the first two zombies you see. Well, in fact, one th- thing I, I would point out is. And this kind of means that I was doing some time checks during the movie, which is usually not a good sign. You know, for about 50 minutes of the movie, there's exactly one zombie attack, you know, which is these it's Iggy Pop and Sarah Driver going into a diner. And there's like the rest of it is just people kind of talking about the situation that they expect to be in at some point, which I thought was kind of a risk-taking thing to do in a zombie <laughs> yeah. movie. Um, but but Carol Kane is in this. Carol Kane is funny doing anything. I laughed at her. I laughed at this uh, group of young people from Cleveland. I won't say exactly why, uh, but there's a very funny thing that's said about them. I mean, I probably laughed five or six t- times during the movie. And, you know, and I'm not that easy to laugh. So, I mean, did anybody else find it funny? I, I laughed three times. You did? It, it, was, it was a good three laughs. Like, yeah. when, when the hipsters came with Lucas Abbott, he's a model – um, Jake, Jake Tyler Austin, he was on Disney as a child, the blonde guy. And then you have Selena Gomez. It was a perfect cast to, you know, cast my generation. I was, I was like, okay, that's cool. Usually when you try to cast young people, it's a little cringy. Um, I thought that the Bill Murray and Adam Driver combo was really funny. I thought they were kind of the most redeemable part of the entire film was their relationship. Yeah, I thought it, it was funny at parts. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I, that, you, you just lifted it a little higher than the Fantastic Four movie. I don't know. I was like the whole time I was like, can't th- like I was rooting for the zombies. Like this is the first time ever I was like, yes, the end dead. Like let's get it popping. Like it, the setup was just so long. It dragged a little yeah. bit. I, okay, I, I'll just say that I went to this movie like wanting to like like it and defend it because I'm I'm actually a big fan of Jin Shimmer's work. Mm. I think Only Lovers Left Alive was was, was genuinely one of my favorite movies. Um, and like I can I generally kind of know what he, the key he's operating in. The thing that felt apart from me about this movie is that the the third act. It just felt like it was a senior thesis film, and it felt lazy. A lot of it just felt very, um, like, we just want to hang out. We want an excuse to hang out, maybe make a little bit of money. And it was really <laughs> tough for me um, because there was, there was a real strength to the premise. I thought that the premise and the entire deadpan notion, there's, there is a movie here that can be very, very good on its own terms. It's just, it just didn't fulfill itself, I think. Yeah, I mean, one of the ways in which it differentiates itself from zombie formula movies it doesn't differentiate itself enough, I think, is part of the problem. Mm-hmm. It's Jim Jarmusch, and I'm thinking, well, the zombies are going to be look even different from, say, The Walking Dead or something, but they don't. Um, but, Lucy, one of the differentiations is that the – and this is not a spoiler. Uh, when the zombies wake up, when they are reanimated, they want the things that they wanted while they were alive. So you – have people who, yeah, they want coffee or they're, you do see some zombies walking around going, Wi-Fi, <laughs> and they want Wi-Fi. And I, I laughed at that, too. And, I, you know, there is an argument to be made that Jarmusch is trying to make ver- some really mordant set of comments about consumer culture, like even when we're dead, we're just as bad. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I thought as far as that, it was sort of this funny tongue-in-cheek, which is what Jarmusch does, criticism of consumer culture, of, um, yeah, of that, of um, inv- uh, sort of the ruining the environment that is going on right now, and, and especially with climate change, thinking of, I walked out of the theater to a very foggy New Haven where you couldn't even see the street in front of you, and I thought, oh, this is very apropos. Um, but, um, but, but yeah, I mean, it, and, and of course the political pundits that you hear on the radio saying, this is going to be fine. This is completely normal. And then, uh, you see kind of the, I'm not ruining anything, the moon with a, a weird glow around it. And I, I thought that was pretty spot on. Um, maybe it's just because I had such low expectations that I'm feeling this way. Um, but, but I thought it was a great kind of tongue in cheek critique of we're at this moment where really there is an apocalypse, uh, apocalypse, excuse me, happening with climate change. And we're all sort of looking the other way and telling each other it's going to be okay. And it basically is like zombies are taking over. And, uh, and I mean, the, like the world is going to end. It's just going to end in a, in a different way. And we're going to die, but maybe not with someone eating our brains out. Right. And, and you know, I mean, to Sam's point about uh, so Adam Driver and Bill Murray, to the extent this is this film kind of has two styles of narration going on. One of them is Adam Driver and Bill Murray as these two cops who are riding around talking about what's happening in pretty phlegmatic voices, too. They're just they're not sufficiently worried, you know, which is sort of a Bill Murray thing. I mean, if you think about Ghostbusters, he's really not as afraid as the other Ghostbusters because he kind of knows he's in a movie. Um, and, and Bill Murray kind of specializes in that kind of thing. So you've got that. And we can talk a little bit more about that because they do break character twice. And then the other narrator is Tom Waits, who Tom Waits is by the only is by the way the only person who can go into full makeup as a hermit and look a lot better and healthier than he does, you know, <laughs> on an average day. Um, but I know I say that loving Tom Waits, but I mean you know, um, but he's got this big long beard, big long hair, and. And and he's trying to, or Jarmish is using weights as like first of all the person who survives. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's a spoiler, but um, yeah. But you you know that yeah. you know that like less than thirty seconds into yeah. The movie. That he's he's gonna be the one because it's like this grasp at PC culture. It's like oh, what can I grab? Oh, global warming. Oh, consumerism. Yeah. Oh, living off the land. Like it was just like I I I I, I was numb. I was literally I was numb by the end of it to all these like piece like it was just crazy just to watch like of course it's a guy who lives in the woods and like eats mushrooms off the ground that survives <laughs> this ab- oh, sorry yeah I, I guess we already kind of said it right well i that's that's really not where the money is anyway here in this movie i mean in terms of the stakes of the movie you're not you don't spend a lot of time worrying about who's going to live through it and who doesn't or anything like that but nick it does seem like at the end even you know i mean after he's quoted from moby dick and <laughs> And some other stuff. It's kind of like, in case you don't understand what this movie was about, although how could that possibly right. be? Tom waits his one last speech to kind of, you know. I, I the thing is, like, is this is this what older people think about <laughs> younger people? Is this what older yeah. people think? What hipsters are? Yeah. What you know, uh, war- anxiety over global warming and and uh, and political you know agitize like. There's a way in which the movie is so divorced or ap- apathetic about the plight of the people and the plight of the situation, then you kind of feel like, what, what is, uh, maybe that's the point, maybe there's like a certain kind of nihilism to it, but like, 
there is no real rigor to the exploration yeah. of the nihilism, which is really disappointing in uh, in my book. Yeah. Except the the young people who are in the movie, there are three young people in the movie, and they're like the smartest ones. Well, four, well, four of the zombies. Yeah, yes. The guy who runs the zombie yes. store. Yeah, well, there's actually, well, there's three people who are in a youth correctional facility. Oh, right, because this is a town with no school, oh, right. but with a correction, which I actually found very funny. Right, I kind we're of moving in that direction it. generally. Yeah, correct, yeah. 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 <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, so clearly these three youth we learn have been probably penalized or, or put there for just for being smart and being seen as uh, kind of like maybe too smart or, or talking back for their own good. Um, and I, th- I think they're, well, I, w- I won't spoil it. All right. Are yeah. you just going to stop right there? <laughs> yeah, I'm going <laughs> to yeah, stop right there. Well, there's, one last thing that I'd like to talk about <laughs> just before we go to break here, because I mean, one thing that happens twice in the movie, and this is not a spoiler at all, it might spoil the movie when you see it happen, but is that that Adam Driver and Bill Murray really talk about the fact that this is a movie. It's a movie with theme music. Uh, It's a movie where one of them claims to have read the entire script and the other one hasn't. Uh, And boy, I just cannot tell you how much I hated that. Yeah, it was was awful. I mean, there are moments, there are ways to do it. There are moments when it can be effective. If you think about Monty Python and the Holy Grail, some people like that anyway, that every once in a while it flashes to the present where a movie is being made at the end of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. The police show up, the modern police show up and arrest King Arthur. Um, You know, you can do things like that, but it... I, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know why it bothered me so much here. Maybe because the movie itself seemed to have, lack conviction to begin with, and that this is one more way of bailing on it. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. And I, I like when that happens. Sorry to cut you off, but I, I like usually when that happens when the fourth wall is broken because it makes me think of the movie in a different way. Like, what universe does this actually live in? Like for Blazing Saddles, that's the best. That's the best time I've ever seen that ever used. Is when you have a movie inside a movie being made in a movie. Like when you get that complicated and that complex, it makes me think about the universe that you're living in. Like at least. I, maybe I think of it like tenfold too much that I think that like, oh, what's like actually happening here? But this was just so lazy. And you were so right. It was, a th- it was like a senior thesis. It was like, bro, you know what would be dope? If we had a movie inside a movie. It was yeah, just... I, I went to college half an, hour, half an hour away from here from Wesleyan and I feel like this like, felt, brought me back to senior year watching a couple of series. No, no offense to senior thesis films, but like, woo, yeah. just needed some edits. But in... In that way, it's very right that like very lazy breaking of the fourth wall is totally on brand for this. Like th- like if this feels like a senior thesis movie, then that like works within this uh, really lazy framework. Right. Well, so we'll stop there. I don't th- I mean, Lucy and I both kind of enjoyed it, but nobody's really super recommending it. It's sort of three zombies outside Ebbing, Missouri, but it's not. As good as that one movie was. Um, all right, so we'll take a little break. We're gonna, you know what? I have to say one last thing. It's also sort of a reunion for the cast of Scrooged. Uh, you have Bill Murray, Tom Waits, Carol Kane. I don't know if there's anybody else, but at least three members of that cast. All right, uh, we uh, have to take a little break. We'll come back. We're back. Uh, this is the part usually where Wolfie uh, says all the credits and stuff like that. But she's, I think, off playing a kazoo today. So I will say. And I think basically, are we the only people who worked on this show? I think we might be. <laughs> Jonathan McPants is the producer of today's show. And I'm here. And I, is there anybody else I have to thank? Well, Gene Amatruda, who's sort of the heart and lungs of the station, I'm sure he did something to keep us from going off the air. So uh, we'll thank uh, him as well. Also very exciting to have Rachel, one of my former students uh, from here at Yale. She's uh, visiting and sitting in the booth and listening 
listening to Jonathan swear at me when I do things wrong. Um, <laughs> and so uh, now it's time to endorse things. Uh, Nick Kwa, why don't you get us going? Uh, I'll give you two. One podcast related, one not podcast related. The podcast related one is KCRW's Lost Notes, which is an anthology series about uh, that tells you know various uh, stories from the music industry in the past. Uh, this season is executive produced by a legendary music journalist named Jessica Hopper. She's based out of Chicago. Um, and it is one of the most wonderfully, most efficiently and effectively done uh, music anthologies or anthology podcasts that I've, I've heard in a long time. In particular, it's a great episode called To Shan Marshall, in which a poet performs his sort of like uh, his letter to Cat uh, Powers uh, for the al- from an album that saved his life. Hmm. Uh, the second thing well, I so want to say the name again because people might have missed it. Uh, the the name of this podcast is Lost Notes, the Lost second Notes. season, and the episode in particular is To Shan Marshall. Um, the second thing I want to recommend is a piece in The New Yorker. It's a profile by Jia Young Fan of uh, Cixin Liu, who is the author of the Three Body Problem trilogy. It's a, it's a very well-known piece of science fiction. And the piece doubles as a really interesting sort of collision between two forms of Asian-ness. One is if you grew up in, in China and Asia and like you see yourself in that, in that framework versus a, an Asian person who grew up in, in the West. And it, it's a wonderful, fascinating piece. Oh, that's great. All right, Lucy Gelman, what have you got for us? Sure. I um, I wanted to recommend two books, one children's book and one book for grown-ups, although I think both are books for grown-ups. I have a real affinity for this book. It's Jessica Loves, Julian is a Mermaid. It's a new book. It came out this year, and it received a Stonewall Book Award. So it's uh, particularly apropos for this month, but I think for every month. It's this beautiful book about a little boy who wants to be a mermaid and his grandmother. It's told in a mix of English and, and Spanish, and it, it ju- if it doesn't make your heart go boom, you're probably a bad person. Or a zombie. You could be a zombie. Or, or you could be a zombie. Yeah. Yeah. So in that case, people should go for the head. Um, and, and the other for grownups, especially for women and women identifying folks out there, is Naomi Alderman's The Power. It is mm-hmm. a work of speculative fiction, and it is one of the best books I've read in a very long time. Um, it uh, It is so relatable reading this book. And um, I've been having a very emotional reaction to it as I've read it. So I can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah. First of all, we either did a nose about the power, or we did. So we did. Yeah, it might be the only novel that we've ever done an episode of the nose about, because uh, we usually don't read books because the panelists don't have time. But I think it is the only one that we've ever done, um, uh, you know, an actual nose episode uh, where everybody read the same novel. Uh, and I, I find it very powerful too. Although it's interesting because people do read it different ways too. People do see it in different ways. So well, we'll discuss that. It's, off the air. Yeah, it's great. Um, okay, so Sam Hattleman, what have you got for us? Uh, I got a couple of recommendations. First is an article from Days Magazine. It's an interview with Frank Ocean, and the interesting part about it is that it's famous people asking him questions, like Billy Porter, Rex Orange County, fantastic singer. He had, like just a bunch of people who have been, and it's like very simple questions, like how do you make music? How do you feel about this? Like it, it is an awesome article, completely. Could you maybe also just say a little bit about <coughs> the reason that you have to do something like that? I mean, oh, Frank, because Frank Ocean, because Frank is, Ocean like lives in a cave somewhere, like you can't find him. Ever. He is the most elusive artist I've ever seen. He's like he's like Prince. It's like you have to go through miles to see him. And like, yeah, he's just he's just almost like a ghost. Right. So it's a fantastic, fantastic read. Truly one of the best articles I've read. And my second comes from a uh, first e- a first album from this artist called Dominic Fike. The album is called Don't Forget About Me Demos. He kind of works with Brockhampton. Um, it's kind of like a sublime Blink-182 rap mix. And I know that sounds really corny, Like, and I know it sounds terrible, but yeah, trust you, me. You didn't just sell it there. I know, I know, but just trust me. Just me. Yeah, I swear, it is. So, he is so good. It okay. is, I'm listening. S- say the name again so people can uh, Don't Forget it. About Me by Dominic Fike. 
All right. So I also want to uh, once again say that on Thursday, we're doing our annual Song of the Summer show. Sam is going to participate in that for the first time. The premise is that there is a Song of the Summer every year, that there's one song, whether it's Despacito or Blurred Lines or Call Me Maybe. Uh, Drake has kind of screwed us up a couple of times in, in recent years by having the Song of the Summer when he wasn't supposed to. Uh, but there is the one song that somehow or other emerges above all the others and uh, defines what the summer is. And we try to guess what it's going to be every year, which means that we have to go through a lot of music, a lot of pop music that you may find somewhat annoying. Um, so I'm warning you there. Um, so I was lucky enough to be off last week, which means that I can read for pleasure. Usually there's a lot of reading to get ready for all these shows. And I was looking for that kind of page turning novel, you know, the one that just kind of just pulls you uh, right in. Uh, I was we stopped for a night in Burlington, Vermont on the way uh, up to Montreal. I went into a bookstore there the next day. I think it's called the Crow Bookstore. It's there on that marketplace of four blocks that are closed off to um, vehicular traffic. And I found a book called The Immortalists by Chloe Benjamin. Uh, the premise of this novel is that there are four siblings uh, from the Gold family, and they, uh, as children uh, living in the Lower East Side, they pool their allowances and they go visit a woman who's been staying in the neighborhood who is believed to be a fortune teller. Uh, and she tells each one of them uh, individually the date of their death. Um, and the book is very much about what it's like to live with that uh, and, and not knowing, of course, whether it's it's true or not. They don't know whether this woman knows anything about this. But it's uh, And so you follow each one of them um, th through the process of, first of all, becoming an adult and, second of all, um, living with that, that question about destiny. Uh, and, you know, it's a somewhat profound novel, but it, it mostly is that thing you're looking for during the summer, too, which is uh, a terrific read and a terrific page turner. Uh, that's what we want during the summer, so something we can kind of curl up with. So it's The Immortalists. It's by Chloe Benjamin. It's out in paperback and all other formats, I would assume. Uh, definitely recommend it for a, a vacation uh, run. And as long as I, I have like a little extra, like a minute I have to burn here anyway, uh, I will say that um, you know, I mean, obviously Montreal is a very easy place to visit as long as you've got a passport. Uh, when you're going through customs, either both entering Canada or leaving, do not say to the, to the customs guards, these are not the droids you're looking for. They don't <laughs> think that that's a funny thing. Um, but other than that, it's a, obviously a very easy vacation to take. And Burlington, which is, you know, maybe about an hour and a half south of Montreal, it really is an amazing town. I mean, they suffer so much. They're the worst <laughs> winters in the world. I mean, they're about as far north as you can go in Vermont, and they're right next to this huge lake that has wind blowing off it. And they're just, it's miserable, miserable winters. And they kind of compensate, or they, you know, they, they really celebrate summer and get out in the streets and, and have a good time. And there's music, live music all the time. I found somebody doing a a solo harp, harpist and vocalist uh, performing in a little club at 5.30 in the evening on a weeknight, on a Monday night. So there's a lot going on in Burlington. So uh, yeah, that's an easy trip for you to take, too. And it's uh, you can you know, spend a day there and have a lot of fun. All right. Thanks so much uh, to our terrific panel here today. Uh, you've got to be uh, looking at Nicholas Qua's uh, newsletter, Hot Pod, if you are the tiniest bit uh, concerned uh, about the industry we know as podcasting. Uh, Sam Haddleman uh, is... Uh, 
uh, the host of the Sam Hadleman Show. What other show would he host on <laughs> WNHH? Yeah, it would be weird if you were hosting the Dick Van Dyke Show or something. That wouldn't make any sense at all. Uh, Lucy Gelman is the editor of the Arts Paper and host of WNHH Radio's Kitchen Sink. She wants you to enjoy Make Music Day in New Haven and Hartford, and so do we. And thanks to Jonathan McPants for making it all happen. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain. Vernon, I already said that one. Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah.